Hello and welcome to Psychology in Seattle. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, professor and licensed therapist. It's just me today. I thought I would give a presentation about cannabis or marijuana. During the last election in Washington State, where I live, the voters passed some sort of ballot measure or something that made recreational use of marijuana legal. And so lots of people are talking about marijuana use in Seattle, as they probably always have. But I think now it's become perhaps a little bit more mainstream. And in the effort of proliferating good information, I thought I would do some research and pass along what I found. But before I get started, I just want to remind you that you can go to Psychology in Seattle and click around our various different tabs and listen to old episodes and watch videos, video episodes, and check out the links. And particularly, you can go to the Support Us page where you can follow steps to show your support of the podcast. We don't do this podcast just for the fun of it, although that is a major part. We also do it for accolades. Um, <laughs> our self-esteem is partially based on your accolades. So please provide some of those if you can. For instance, you can go to iTunes and review us. We have a few reviews there, and they're generally positive, which is nice. You can also show your support by donating. For the few of you out there who have donated, thank you very, very much. That is probably the way we get the most self-esteem, the biggest bang for your buck, so to speak. You can also send us an email at contact at psychology in Seattle or go to the contact us page on psychologyinseattle.com and send us a message. For, for those of you who have emailed us or contacted us, you know that we do read these and we do respond. So, all right. So marijuana, cannabis, hemp, let's get into it. First off, let's uh, define some terms. I always like to start off these kinds of things with a definition of terms because a lot of times people don't do this stuff and it sort of annoys me because I'm always wondering, wait a second, what does this mean? What does that mean? Anyway, okay. So first of all, so first of all, first of all, Cannabis. In general, I found in the literature, and by literature I mean peer-reviewed journal literature, not the internet, if, if, if you're wondering. So cannabis is generally used as an umbrella term for all marijuana products, for hemp, and also it is used as a term for the plant. The plant that grows in the wild, they don't call it marijuana, they call it cannabis. I suppose they might call it a marijuana plant, but in the more accurate term is cannabis. And there are three different types of cannabis plant, but I'll get into that in a second. Okay, so cannabis is the general umbrella term. It's it's perhaps the more technical term. In the DSM-5, they use the word cannabis. They don't use the word marijuana. Another term that I read a lot was the word hemp. And this I found to usually refer to the physical products that the plant cannabis can make. So when you have rope that's made out of the cannabis plant, they will usually refer to it as hemp, hemp rope, or they have hemp paper, this sort of thing. Another use of the word hemp is in Seattle. There's a hemp fest that's been going on for a long time. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. I, I don't know what they'll be doing this year. I think it's in the summer. Anyway, they have it down at Myrtle Edwards Park every year and or in recent years, but it's been going on in Seattle. I don't know how long. Let me look that up. So according to Wikipedia, uh, Seattle Hemp Fest is an annual event in Seattle, Washington. It is the world's largest annual gathering advocating decriminalization of marijuana. 
It was founded in 1991 as a self-described humble gathering of stoners attended by only 500 people. There's a lot more people that attend it now. In the 90s, I remember Hempfest as kind of a scary event to some extent. I think it attracted a certain element. I, I don't know that for sure. But um, as, as time went on uh, throughout the 2000s or the aughts, the zeros, and up until recently, it's become more and more mainstream. People will sell marijuana and, and use it openly at Hempfest. And now I suppose it's not that big of a deal because it's legalized in Washington. But back then, uh, before it was, you know, completely illegal. And yet people were just smoking out in the open and the police were basically just looking the other way or just making sure that things didn't get out of control, which I don't think they ever did. And incidentally, uh, years ago, I talked with a Seattle police officer and he said that it was an official policy of the Seattle Police Department that they were not going to arrest people for marijuana, that they weren't going to pursue charges of marijuana because it was, although illegal, very low on their priority list. So the decriminalization of marijuana has had a very slow and gradual process uh, throughout the 90s and the zeros. Uh, for those of you outside of the United States, um, whether you know this or not, I'm going to tell you, um, attitudes about marijuana vary from state to state. And in Washington and or the West Coast, I should say, it uh, is perhaps the most liberal. People who advocate for decriminalization are mainly on the West Coast. And as a result, the laws in Washington, Oregon and California reflect that. But uh, Washington was, uh, along with Colorado, was the first states to decriminalize recreational use, which uh, I think is a good idea for various reasons. Uh, most, most namely, we can all agree that locking people up in prisons for long periods of time is probably not the answer to helping people with their problems. Plus, if someone is smoking marijuana a little bit and they're not driving a car and not endangering anybody, then what's the harm? It's just a little bit of marijuana. Big deal. I mean, alcohol, I think most people agree, is much more destructive and yet it's legal, but not completely. Like you can't drink and drive, for instance. And so why can't marijuana just be on the same level as that? So basically, Hempfest is a place where a lot of people go to celebrate cannabis and have been doing so apparently since 1991. Uh, I think I became more aware of it in the mid-90s. And it was a very interesting time because things are much more relaxed in our culture regarding cannabis now, but not back then. I always sort of felt like, how are they getting away with this? They're basically, it's like, you know, having a festival back then a, with cocaine everywhere. It's like, how are the cops or the feds not rolling in and just arresting everybody? So it was quite a, a coup, I thought. And, you know, probably played a part in the overall sea change that we have seen in our culture and specifically in Seattle and Washington. The, the, the festival, for the most part, uh, has always been pretty low-key. Just people celebrating marijuana, people signing petitions to change the laws, speakers uh, talking about decriminalization, people talking about medical marijuana, this sort of thing, people selling bongs and pipes and 
other kind of stuff, but also people partaking in the substance. And, and one of the things, unfortunately, that it attracted, I think, or in my experience, was a few, shall I call them, drug douchebags that want to just become extremely loaded on anything and, and just think, oh, hemp fest, it's this drug-free zone. I'm going to shove a bunch of substances in my body and then have a really bad trip and annoy everyone around me. So there are certainly people like that. But for the most part, everyone, if you walked through there and didn't really take notice of the paraphernalia, you would just think you were at any other festival, you know. And it was really people from all walks of life. I, I remember one time uh, coming around a corner downtown and bumping into a guy that had obviously come from Hempfest because he had all these uh, accoutrements from Hempfest, like, you know, a big weed shirt and uh, some sort of hat that was made out of paper and and uh, beads and stickers on them and you know, he's just he's laden in marijuana garb. So in your mind, stereotypically, you're thinking, ah, oh, you know, 20 year old skinny white guy, right? Well, the man was like a 65 year old Asian American guy, <laughs> this short, old Asian American guy, someone that could be in my family uh, coming around the corner, laden in a bunch of marijuana garb. I really despise stereotypes and I, I love it when I see things that break that that break stereotype. I really like that. So anyway, that's Seattle Hemp Fest. I went off on a tangent. Okay, back to the definition of terms. So okay, we have cannabis, we have hemp, and we have the word marijuana. Uh, marijuana, in, in my experience in the literature, usually refers to the recreational drug or the medical drug. So they don't usually say medical cannabis. They usually say medical marijuana. And when people are referring to the psychoactive drug, they usually say smoking marijuana, not smoking cannabis, but some people do. And other names for marijuana that I found in the literature were uh, the following. And I find that these lists to be f kind of funny because, um, I don't know, it just kind of makes me feel like I'm in sixth grade health class and I'm talking about the various names. And I remember when teachers would talk about the various names of marijuana, like half of them, I'd be like, what? Who calls it that? But anyway, so those names are hashish. Weed, grass, reefer, pot, herb, ganja, old man, old man, daga, daga or daga, never heard that one, smoke, hash, dope, Mary Jane, hooch. Oh, I, f I think I finally figured out where Mary Jane comes from. It's because, you know, marijuana or marijuana is another way of saying that in the Spanish language is Mary Jane, uh, apparently. So I never made that connection. I never knew why they called it Mary Jane. Anyway. Hooch, joints, brew, brew, why would they call it brew? Cones, cones, what? Skunk, boom, gangster, gangster, come on. Uh, mull, Buddha, hydro, heads, and green. <laughs> uh, it's just funny, you know, funny words. Boom, who calls it boom? That's weird. Cones, why in the world do you call it cones? I guess maybe the plant kind of looks like a cone. Anyway. All right, so getting to history, the history of cannabis in the world and in the United States. First off, there are three different cannabis plants, apparently. There's cannabis sativa, cannabis indica or indica, I don't, probably indica, cannabis ruderalis, ruderalis, rudderless, rudderalis, <laughs> anyway, it's something with an R. Anyway, so there's three different cannabis plants. I'm sure there are different uh, traits of each, but I didn't look too far into it. And all these plants are apparently native to South Central Asia or, you know, India and 
think Afghanistan, these areas. And apparently, according to literature, the plant has been cultivated by humans for thousands of years for various reasons. It, to me, almost seems like it has the usefulness of bamboo that because it, I think it grows very quickly and very, you know, rough terrain, doesn't need a lot of uh, tending to. It, it seems to grow anywhere and it has a lot of usefulness to humans. And so they would use it apparently as food, which I've never heard before. They used it in fabrics. So, you know, they would break it apart and weave it into things that could be used in, for fabric. They would ground it down, I guess, and make it into a pulp so they could make paper. They made rope out of it. They used it for building material. And they also used it for its psychoactive properties. And they also used it for its medicinal properties, which I'll get into later. So jumping ahead thousands of years, hundreds of years, in the early 1600s, cannabis was first brought to the Americas by European explorers to produce rope, cloth, and other materials. So prior to that point, cannabis was not growing in the Americas. So it was brought over by early European explorers um, to provide things that they were used to using. And they figured, well, we, bre we better bring cannabis with us because we don't know if we're going to be able to find this plant over there. And I, I read somewhere that early settlers, European settlers in the Americas, were actually required to grow cannabis for the sake of the community. Okay, so jumping ahead uh, a little bit more, in the late 1700s, there's evidence that the initial drafts of the American Declaration of Independence was written on hemp paper. Does that mean like they're all a bunch of dope smokers? I, I don't know, but hemp and other products that cannabis provided was an important part, I guess, of the early European-American culture. And again, the information that I'm getting is not from the Internet. It's, it's, it's not propaganda for marijuana. It was from respectable literature and respectable journals. So because in my experience, there's a lot of hoo-ha that gets propagated about marijuana. And you, so you have to make sure that you're not falling victim to some kind of um, unsupported claim. So, all right. So jumping ahead a little bit further in the 1800s, I read, and this surprised me, I had no idea this was true. I, I had no idea about this, that there were hashish parlors like like coffee shops, essentially, or opium dens is probably more uh, like it. But they had, you know, marijuana parlors that were in American cities, mainly in the East Coast, because that's where most people lived in the 1800s. And apparently there were several in New York City alone. So essentially, you know, back then, it was legal to to possess and sell and use. And so there would be people that would hold it in a store and sell it, and you would actually be able to use it in the store along with uh, opium. You know, there would be opium dens where people would go there and for a fee could smoke opium and get high. And so there are similar parlors for marijuana, which I had no idea. That's very interesting. Then uh, jumping ahead to the late 1800s, there was a shift in American attitudes, which led to state laws that were designed to regulate marijuana. So some states had them and some states didn't, and, but, and they all kind of look different. And that, that's kind of the weird thing about American politics is that the federal government doesn't usually exert their power unless they feel the need to. And all the states are free to make up their own laws about a lot of things. And, and marijuana was, was one of those issues in the early days and still is. So then jumping ahead to the 1900s in the Great Depression, 
we all know that at that time in the States, there was a shortage. There was a shortage of jobs. There was a high unemployment rate. And so when you have people vying for particular scarce jobs, you have tensions between people. And, and some of the tensions arose between uh, Mexican-Americans and European-Americans in the Southwest. So southwestern states, California, Arizona, these areas, there there were already racial tensions. And then when you add the fact that there's a shortage of jobs and both groups are trying to get the jobs, the Mexican-Americans and the European-Americans were upset at each other. And since the European-Americans have the political power, they use that power to oppress the non-European-Americans. Um, there's actually a whole history I can tell you about Japanese-Americans and my family. They were farmers in Washington state, and uh, a similar thing happened. But, but anyway, so in the southwestern states, you have European-Americans that are trying to get rid of the Mexican-Americans so they can have the jobs. And Mexican-Americans were associated with marijuana. And so they wanted to make marijuana illegal, presumably to get rid of the Mexican-Americans or to lock them up, or they just associated Mexican-Americans with evil things. And since marijuana was for some reason associated with Mexican-Americans, they decided to petition the government, the federal government, to step in and take control. And also at the time, in the early 1900s, there was this new thing called film and talkies, you know, movies. And so there were people that made movies as propaganda against marijuana. You can look online. They're really fascinating. There, there's a couple. The main one that often gets cited in literature is called Reefer Madness. That's Reefer Madness. And in, in this movie, cannabis is portrayed as evil and menacing and maddening and is associated with criminal behavior. You see these young people. They, they look old. You know, whenever you see young people that were of a different era, they always seem old. But I'm guessing they were supposed to be, you know, around 20 or something. And they're at a house party and, and they're smoking marijuana and they're dancing around and they're getting a little crazed and they have sex very quickly and and this other guy tries to rape this other girl and then there's a there's a physical fight between one of the guys and and the rapist and then there's a gun and then two guys wrestle over the gun the gun goes off accidentally and shoots a woman and then this leads to a cascade of all these problems spoiler alert by the way and another woman kills herself the rapist eventually is convicted and sent to an insane asylum and he clearly has lost his mind everyone has horrible things happen to him and and it and it only happened because they smoked marijuana if they hadn't smoked marijuana none of this would have would have happened um, in my search, I actually came across some videos uh, in the 70s talking about the pros and cons of marijuana. And one involves Sonny, Sonny Bono. And it's pretty interesting to watch, actually. It, at first, I thought, oh, boy, a movie about marijuana in the 70s. This is going to be laughable. Well, there's definitely some giggling moments. But overall, I thought it was pretty responsible. There were definitely times when they are clearly trying to scare people away from marijuana. But there were other times when I thought they were treating the topic with some sophistication. So anyway, uh, with all this tension in the Southwest between for jobs and the reefer madness campaign and the prohibition campaign, this led to a criminalization of marijuana. 
And incidentally, I read, again, in respectable literature, that when it was criminalized in 1937 by the federal government, that the American Medical Association and the pharmaceutical industry were actually against the government criminalizing marijuana. My, my guess is, is that they found the substance to be helpful and wanted to do research or wanted to use it or sell it, and the government was making it illegal, and that would perhaps reduce their profits or their ability to help people. So since 1937, since it became criminalized by the federal government in 1937, cannabis has become progressively more and more regulated over the years. So then in the 1970s, the feds classified it as a Schedule I substance, which means that it meets the following three criteria. One, it has a high potential for abuse. Two, there are no current accepted medical uses, which is interesting since there probably were back then. And there definitely are now. And the third criteria for a Schedule I substance is lack of accepted safety for use under medical supervision. Again, they must have been interpreting the research on marijuana in a negative way to make it fit these criteria, because certainly today it would seem that people might not necessarily define it as such. But anyway, so in 1970s, it became a Schedule I substance, which, which meant it was a very big deal legally, which meant that it was as big a deal as, as other drugs that you know about. So skipping forward to the 1990s, starting in 1996, a number of states approved laws making medical marijuana legal for specific diseases. And since 1996, 18 U.S. states have approved the use of medical marijuana, including the state of Washington. However, the federal government prohibits pharmacies from distributing medical marijuana, so that's why patients buy it from dispensaries instead of pharmacies. And something that I read that was interesting was that even though it's legal for some people to use marijuana for a specific disease, some workers are being fired for testing positive. Uh, so it's this weird contradiction in the law. It's saying that, yeah, you have, say, some kind of disease like, I don't know, like you have cancer and you're going through chemotherapy and it is reducing your appetite. So the doctor says, I want you to use marijuana to increase your appetite because you need to eat to stay healthy. So you start taking marijuana and then it helps with your appetite. You start eating and then your job tests you for marijuana, finds that you have marijuana in your urine, THC in your urine or the, they don't test for THC in the urine. They test for some kind of byproduct of, of THC. But anyway, so they test you at the job and you test positive for marijuana and then you get fired. So how is that fair? I mean, and then you produce your, your medical marijuana documentation and the employer says, oh, I don't care, you're still fired. And you can't go to the courts for protection for that, which seems ridiculous to me. And apparently even the American Disabilities Act won't help because, you know, if you're, if you're disabled, you're not supposed to be discriminated against, right? So if you have an issue medically and you need a particular treatment to help you with that, your employers, I think, I'm not a lawyer, but I think they're not supposed to be able to discriminate against you. You're not supposed to fire you over that. So it's this um, very strange legal 
world we live in right now. Um, okay, and then jumping forward to 2012, last year, Colorado and Washington passed ballot initiatives legalizing marijuana for recreational use. So this is a really, really humongous step in the legalization of marijuana. So it's one thing to make medical marijuana legal, which is a big deal. But it's another thing to make recreational marijuana use legal, right? It's basically saying it's okay to use it just like it's okay to drink alcohol. If you want to use it for whatever reason you want, go ahead and, and use it. You can have it as long as you don't have too much of it. You can smoke it as long as you don't drive your car, this sort of thing. It's just, you know, it's just like alcohol. As far as I know, the specifics around the regulations haven't been ironed out yet, but basically it's legalized in, in Washington state. However, marijuana is still considered a Schedule I controlled substance by the federal government. So it's still extremely illegal, according to the federal government. So how do we make sense of this? According to Washington, D.C., if you get caught with marijuana, you're in big trouble. But according to Washington State, if you get caught with marijuana, you're fine. So how does this make any sense? It's um, very confusing. And as far as I know, they still haven't worked out the details. So that's a brief history of marijuana in the world and in the United States. It's a very complicated story that I very briefly summarized. If you ever want to look into it, uh, I'm sure there's literature out there. It's a, it's a very interesting story. I had no idea that marijuana has such a history in the United States. It's, it's a very long and circuitous path regarding the cannabis plant and its uses and medical marijuana and, you know, using it for recreation. It's, it's just, it's interwoven in a lot of the stories of our nation. In fact, I, I remember years ago, maybe 20 years ago, people that were spouting propaganda for marijuana that, you know, they were pro marijuana uh, and wanted to legalize it. I remember being very skeptical of a lot of things they were saying. And I remember one of the things that they were saying was that the marijuana plant has a lot of uses. And I remember thinking, oh, come on, you just want to smoke your pot. But after reading the material, it's true. The, the cannabis plant has a ton of uses. And I mean, I don't, know if we have, I don't know if we have much use for it today, but it definitely had a lot of uses in the past for our country and, and other civilizations. So anyway. All right. So prevalence. How many people are using this in the world and in the United States? Well, Worldwide, it is apparently the most widely used illicit drug in the world and in the U.S. Worldwide, uh, somewhere between 125 and 200 million people report having used cannabis in the past year, which is about 3 to 5% of the world population uh, reports using marijuana in the past year. In the U.S., again, it's the most widely used illicit drug. More than 17 million individuals, or 6% of the population, used it in 2010, according to research. Um, many more young people use marijuana as opposed to older people. So statistics that exemplify this are 25% of teenagers used marijuana in the past month, and 5% of high school age teens use marijuana daily. And for college students, 33% used in the past year and 4% used daily. So for high school kids and for college young adults, about a third to a quarter use, you know, at some point in the past month or year. And about 5% of high school age people and college age people are using daily, which is a much higher rate than that of people that are older. So there, there are many forms of marijuana. It's not just one particular 
form. So, so, and, and you can break up the different forms into different categories, but according to literature that I read, here's one typology. There are four main kinds of marijuana that I read in the literature. Number one is a low-grade marijuana. So this is the typical marijuana that you might have seen, and it averages about 2% THC content. Then there's high-grade marijuana. So again, it probably looks similar, and it averages about 7% THC content. And then there's hashish, or hash, and this comes in what looks like to be a block of brown substance. And it can range anywhere from 0% to 70% THC. So again, your regular marijuana is between 2 and 7. And then hash is between 0 and 70% THC. Usually it's in the higher range. And hash oil is basically reduced cannabis plant. They will get rid of all the fiber and just reduce it down to an oil. And this can range anywhere from 30% to 90% THC. And again, usually in the higher range. So again, you have the regular flower buds and leaves that will get dried and made into typical marijuana that ranges between 2 and 7% THC. Then you have hash, which ranges from 0 to 70. And then you have hash oil, which is 30 to 90 THC. There are, also, there are also synthetic forms of THC and other cannabinoids available for medical purposes. There's also synthetic cannabinoid compounds that have been developed as designer drugs in the community illegally, I think, essentially. Actually, no, I think they were developed and initially not illegal and sold under names like K2 or Spice. And they are often used because they're easy to buy because they haven't been illegal yet. But I think that's changing or recently has changed. Essentially, you go to these marijuana shops, these head shops, and they sell this stuff that is supposed to be used for incense or something. And people know to smoke it. And it's been synthetically altered or something to have a particular compound in it that emulates the THC compound, but it's not the same. It affects the same receptors in the brain, but it's a different sort of compound and has a different effect, but it's supposed to be similar. The problem is, is that these substances are not regulated by the government and are just made by some sort of Joe Schmo, and you never know what you're going to get. And consequently, I think people have been injured by the use of these substances. Plus, rumor has it, and I think it's true if I remember right reading in the literature, that you can use some of these designer drugs and avoid getting tested positive for marijuana. So say you're an addict or you really love to get high and you are at a job where you are going to be tested. Well, one of the ways around it is to use these K2 or spice substances and you can get high without testing positive because the current tests don't test for these things, although I think that's changing as well. All right, so the psychophysiology of marijuana and cannabis. Basically, there are more than 400 different chemicals in the flower bud of the cannabis plant, and one of those chemicals is THC, or tetrahydrocannabinol. THC. This is the main psychoactive constituent within the flower bud of the cannabis plant uh, among, you know, over 400 other chemicals. So according to research, rather recent research in the last uh, couple decades, they have found that there are two known receptor types in humans that are mainly affected by THC, which 
produces all the main effects of smoking or using cannabis. And these are called cannabinoid receptor type 1 and cannabinoid receptor type 2. And personally, before I go on, I just want to say, when I first saw the word cannabinoid, I thought it would be cannabinoid. You know, it's, that seems, it's like, you know, you have cannabis and then you would have cannabinoid or cannabinoid. <laughs> you have cannabis and you have cannabinoid, but apparently it's pronounced cannabinoid, not cannabinoid. I like cannabinoid, but apparently it's cannabinoid. <laughs> it sounds funny. Cannabinoid, do, 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 do. Cannabinoid. Dun, 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 dun. Anyway, so these are uh, these two receptor types are shortened to CB1 and CB2. Can- cannabinoid receptor type one, cannabinoid receptor type two, and the main receptor that we are interested in when we are studying the physiology of cannabis use is CB1 or cannabinoid receptor type one. CB1 is throughout the central and peripheral nervous system. Essentially, it's throughout the brain. It's throughout the brainstem. It's throughout all the nerves that extend from the brainstem. It seems to be, according to recent research, that it is the most numerous receptor in the body, actually. Of all the receptor types, CB1 is the most numerous. For instance, it's estimated that there are 10 to 20 times more CB1 receptors than there are opioid receptors. And CB2, that that receptor type is also within the central and peripheral nervous system. It's also in the gastrointestinal system and within the immune system. So whenever people smoke cannabis or use cannabis, the THC gets distributed throughout the body and affects pretty much everything in the body. I mean, well, not everything, but all over the body. It affects areas throughout the brain, throughout the brainstem, throughout the nerves that are in your arms and in your legs. It affects the GI system or your your stomach and your your intestines, and it also affects your immune system, which I thought was interesting. And for those of you who know about this sort of thing, CB1 and CB2 are both G-protein-coupled receptors. So I won't go into that if you don't know what that is, but it's a type of receptor. So we're going to focus today on CB1, and we're going to focus mainly on its effect within the brain and not throughout the entire body. So cannabinoid receptors, the CB1 and CB2, are activated by three ligands, or ligands. You can pronounce it ligands or ligands. I like ligands, but apparently you can pronounce it ligands, which reminds me of like liger, you know, which is pretty much the coolest animal, right? So anyway, cannabinoid receptors are activated by three ligands or three different compounds, three different activating agents. The the first is endocannabinoids, which are produced within the body. So essentially, when you have a receptor that's on a neuron, it is activated by particular neurotransmitters or hormones, and the body produces these endocannabinoids to activate that receptor in a, shall we say, a natural way. Basically, it's, it's to transfer information, it's to signal something. Also, these, these receptors in the brain are affected by plant cannabinoids, such as THC. There are several cannabinoids that plants produce for whatever reason, and when they're ingested or inhaled or something, they end up getting into the bloodstream and cross the blood-brain barrier and affect the receptors in this way. And the third ligand that affects these cannabinoid receptors are synthetic cannabinoids. So essentially, they are compounds that are produced synthetically by chemists, and and then once they enter the body, they can affect the receptors as well. And as I said earlier, there's research 
going into creating synthetic cannabinoids for medical use. They're trying to figure out a way to provide the therapeutic effects of cannabinoids without producing the negative side effects, like the effects to cognition and memory and this sort of thing. And they're progressing down that road. They've, they've, I've, I saw some research that some synthetic cannabinoids were actually doing just that. Like, you know, they produce a compound that increases your appetite, but doesn't make you high or gives you a sense of well-being, but doesn't mess with your memory, this kind of thing. Okay, so where is the CB1 receptor specifically in the brain? Well, there are high densities found in a few key areas in the brain. The, the first key area is within the frontal cortex. Uh, think about this as the area right behind your forehead. This is the part of the and it's the, the, the surface of the brain, just, just behind your forehead uh, bone. There are several things that this part of the brain is responsible for. And it's hard to describe, but essentially it's, it's, it's responsible for our reasoning ability, our decision-making, planning, problem-solving. It helps us focus our attention. It is responsible for inhibiting certain responses. Like if you have an urge to punch someone in the, in the face, your frontal cortex says, mm, probably shouldn't do that. It's probably not a good idea. It also helps with working memory. So you can imagine that when people are extremely high or chronically high, that it would affect this part of the brain. It would make them be a little confused. It might make them have a harder time making decisions. It'll make them have a harder time with problem solving and planning for the future and focusing their attention and inhibiting their behavior. And certainly, anecdotally, we have found this to be true. And, and studies actually also show this. Like, I read one study where they gave people a certain task to problem solve. And for those people who were high, were more likely to repeat the same mistakes over and over again, whereas people who weren't high would make a mistake and learn from it and then adjust and problem solve their way out of the problem. Now, is this to say that when people smoke pot, they're complete idiots? Absolutely not. I mean, certainly that can happen to people <laughs> when they're high. And for those of you out there that smoke pot, you can certainly attest to that. But there are certainly a lot of people who smoke pot on a daily basis and don't exhibit any frontal cortex impairment. So it, it really varies across individuals and across the type of cannabis that they use and how much they use and how much tolerance they have and all this kind of stuff. So if it's one thing I've learned in my literature review is that there is a lot of variance in the effects of cannabis. The other area where the CB1 receptor resides mainly is with the, is other than the frontal cortex is within the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is involved in the process of uh, memory. The hippocampus is associated with several different types of memory, and I won't go into all the different types, but, but one of the main things is that it helps to form new memories, new memories. Anecdotal reports, people will say that their memory is affected, that they can't remember things as well when they smoke pot, and it probably involves the hippocampus. I, I read an experiment where they had people smoke pot and they had people that you know, didn't. And then they read a story to them and they asked them to repeat it back to them. And those who smoked pot had a much harder time recalling elements within the story. So it, in the hippocampus seems to be the, the part of the brain that's involved in that. So when they look at the brain, they find a lot of these cannabinoid receptor type ones in the hippocampus. Uh, another area they find it is within the basal ganglia. 
This is in the middle of the brain. The hippocampus is also sort of in the middle of the brain, the lower part of the middle. Basal ganglia is this weird looking thing in the middle of the brain. If you look at a at an image, it's a very strange part of the brain. But anyway, um, <clears throat> it always kind of reminds me of like a like a sperm or or I don't know, like a tadpole that's sort of wrapped around itself, but it also has these weird, I don't know, it's a very strange part of the brain. Anyway, it is involved in motivation and the planning of movement. The other area of the brain that the CB1 receptor seems to be in high density is the cerebellum, which is the back, lower back part of the brain. I think it means literally little brain, cerebellum. It is involved in fine movement coordination. So, you know, again, anecdotally, you will hear people talk about being high and having a hard time with coordination. Uh, a client of mine actually just recently told me about how he had smoked pot and had gone to soccer practice and had this really difficult time performing in a sport that he is good at. So so it would seem likely that his cerebellum was affected by THC because a lot of CB1 receptors are in the cerebellum, and it was impairing his ability to coordinate his movements. And the last area that CB1 receptors are in high density is the spinal cord, which is involved in sensation and pain. So you have your brain and you have this spinal cord going down through your spine, and then you have all these nerves that are branching out from your spinal cord into your arms and legs and everywhere else. And so when your spinal cord is affected, the CB1 receptors are affected by THC, you have a different sensation of, of touch and a different sensation of pain. And this is why marijuana is often used as a pain reliever, uh, as a agent that reduces pain because the receptors in the spinal cord are involved in that. And since THC affects those receptors, then it, it has that effect, but not in everybody. It doesn't reduce pain in everybody, but it does for some. So again, for people that know about this sort of stuff, uh, physiology of neurons and whatnot, the CB1 receptor is primarily a presynaptic receptor. So you have neuron one and you have neuron two. And neuron one is sending a signal to neuron two. And it always goes that direction. One always goes to two. Two never sends a signal back. So you have one going to two. Well, on one, you have these receptors that are within the synapse or the connection between neuron one and neuron two. And on, on the little end of the neuron on, it's hard to describe on the podcast, but essentially the CB1 is a presynaptic receptor. So it is involved in inhibiting neuron one's transmission of certain neurotransmitters. And the most common neurotransmitters that it affects are GABA and glutamate, which are the main neurotransmitters in the information processing of the brain. It's hard to describe, but anyway, you have glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter, and you have GABA, which is a inhibitory neurotransmitter. So it, this sounds very strange to me. I don't know, and I'm sure this science is trying to look into this, but essentially THC reduces the likelihood that two neurotransmitters will be sent across the synapse. And one of those neurotransmitters is an excitatory one, and the other one is an inhibitory one. So if both the excitatory neurotransmitter and the inhibitory neurotransmitter are affected, it would seem like it would cancel you know, it out, but it doesn't do that. So essentially, the THC compound binds to the presynaptic CB1 receptor, which inhibits the release 
of GABA and glutamate. And this process, when you distribute this, this effect throughout the various regions of the brain, you get the various effects that cannabis has on the human body and the human experience. So what are the pharmacokinetics of THC? Well, so there are two main ways that people will use cannabis. One is to inhale it, and the other way is to ingest it. So ways of inhaling it are obviously smoking it, and people smoke it in pipes, bongs, joints, blah, blah, blah. And there's a new way that I've discovered rather recently is that they will use a vaporizer. And vaporizers are a mechanical device that heats the plant material up but doesn't burn it or burns it very slowly or something. And this releases the psychoactive compounds, and then you can inhale those compounds. So I think it's, it's, it's better for you because you're not inhaling a bunch of carcinogenic smoke. You're, in, you're inhaling uh, vapor. So again, it, it heats it up rather than burns it, and this releases the compounds into a gaseous form, and then you can inhale it into your lungs. So when you inhale THC, the psychotropic effects happen within seconds because when you inhale something into your lungs, it goes immediately into the blood and then gets distributed through the bloodstream and, and goes straight to the brain. And so again, you can inhale THC and, and have an effect within seconds. But the maximum blood concentration occurs after 15 to 30 minutes after inhalation. So people will smoke a certain amount of marijuana and they'll feel something right away, but then they will feel a slow ramp up to about 15 minutes after use or 30 minutes after use. And that's when it'll peak. And then it'll taper down after 15 to 30 minutes. So it'll taper down over the span of two or three hours, uh, depending on how much they used and depending on uh, their physiology. Essentially what's happening is the body is metabolizing THC and, and getting rid of it. And it takes time to do that. So the other way that people will use it is by ingesting it. And they can ingest it orally with food. You know, they'll mix it into brownies and, and eat it uh, with, or other foods. Or they can take it in pill form. The, the synthetic cannabinoid compounds can be made into pills and then people can ingest the pills. And so when you ingest THC or other cannabinoids, the psychotropic effects occur within 30 to 90 minutes. So we have a much longer onset of the psychotropic effect. And the maximum blood concentration seems to level after about two or three hours. So it takes a long time for the onset and it takes a long time for it to max out in the blood. And the active duration of ingested cannabinoids can last for four to 12 hours. And you'll hear this anecdotally when people will talk about having eaten a, a funny brownie, they'll, they'll report that they were high for a very long time. And they'll also report that they were too high. A lot of people will say, oh my God, I had a pot brownie and I was so high. All I could do was just like stare out the window and I couldn't talk. And so there's this myth, I think, that ingesting marijuana is more potent. But according to the literature, it's because people can't estimate how much to ingest and they end up ingesting much more than they need to. People, I'm, I'm guessing, have an easier time estimating how much to smoke because they smoke it much more frequently and they're taking it into their lungs. And so it's kind of a process where 
Whereas you could make a pot brownie that could be extremely potent and not really notice it. And then you eat one of those brownies and not realize that you're taking in a lot more marijuana than you would typically if you were smoking it, if that makes any sense. And I think that leads to the issue. The other issue might be is that is that people will eat it and then say, hey, I'm not high, you know, like a half an hour later. That's because it takes a while for it to kick in. And the reason why it takes a while to kick in is because you take it into your gastrointestinal tract and the body uh, has to digest it, right? So that takes a while. And then the compounds immediately go to the liver instead of going straight to the brain. And as they go into the liver, the liver metabolizes it and, you know, starts working on it. And so it's this slow, steady stream from the GI tract into the blood system, filtering through the liver, eventually getting to the bloodstream and eventually getting to the brain. So that's why it takes a lot longer. Whereas, again, when you inhale it, it goes straight to the blood system and straight into your head. So what about UAs or urinalyses? When people are being tested for marijuana in their system, they provide a urine sample and then they test for certain compounds within the urine that indicates marijuana use. And so when people use less than twice per week, their urine will test positive for about one to three days. So let's say someone's, someone uses on Saturday night because they only use every Saturday night with their friends. So on Sunday, if you test their urine, it'll test positive. Monday, probably Tuesday, maybe. But by Wednesday, they shouldn't show any of the compounds that indicate marijuana use if they only use once a week. However, if they are chronic daily users, when, when someone uses every day, their urine will be positive for THC or the, or the resulting compound of THC after the body processes THC for 30 days or longer. So say someone's using every day for, I don't know, a few months, and then they stop using, well, they could test positive for marijuana 30 days later. The reason for this is that THC can persist in the body for a long time. It can, after you smoke it, it can stick around in the body for up to two weeks and even longer if someone is a chronic user because it builds up in the body and even longer still for obese users because it resides, it gets stored in the fat. So as a result, if people smoke marijuana, it, it can affect their mental and physical functions long after they stop using. All right, so what are the positive subjective effects of marijuana? Well, in general, for most people and under most situations, but not all, it tends to produce emotional well-being. It can produce euphoria, you know, feeling like, oh, I feel really good. It can elevate one's mood. You know, people are a little down. It can make them feel happy. It can relax people. It can decrease aggression in some, but not all. It can produce a feeling that time is slowing down. And again, this seems to be involved with the CB1 receptors that are concentrated in the hippocampus. Another positive sub subjective effect is that it can cause people to hear subtleties in speech or music. You'll, you'll hear people say that they listen to a song that they've heard, you know, hundreds of times, but when they're high, they hear whole new things within the song. And I've heard a theory about this that because cannabis makes the brain feel as though time is slowing down, it's, it produces this effect where people can be more in the moment and can concentrate more on smaller bits of time, if that makes any sense. And so it's like opening a window to 
things that they wouldn't have seen because they would have gone by them too quickly. But because of marijuana and it slows time down, it, it helps to illuminate things that might have just whizzed past them in, uh, under normal circumstances, if that makes any sense. Another positive subjective effect is people will say that visual images are more intense or more meaningful. People sometimes feel a sense of wonder about the world, an amazement about certain things. So, you know, if you just take note of all of those positive effects, you, you know, can see why a lot of people use cannabis because who wouldn't want to pass this up, right? Okay, so some of the medical uses of cannabis are that it is an appetite stimulant. You know, one of the most stereotypical effects of marijuana is it gives you the munchies, right? So it, it produces appetite in many people. It makes them want to eat. So for people that are suffering from a low appetite for whatever reason, they can take cannabis and have their appetite restored to a functioning level. Another medical use is it can be used as a muscle relaxant. It can also be used as a pain reliever. It can also reduce nausea. Uh, these are important things for people. Uh, if you're constantly nauseous for some reason or another, uh, and all you need to do is take some cannabis and you are no longer nauseous, that's a wonderful thing. Uh, there are many other medical uses that are being researched, uh, but a lot of the research is preliminary and the results are spotty. There are a lot of claims that marijuana can do a lot more than the list I have here, but the research just isn't in yet. I think we'll find out more later. And, and personally, after reading a lot of the literature, my personal opinion, my personal prediction of the future is that marijuana will indeed have many effects, but they will be individual, that for some people it will produce this effect and for other people it will not. So that's just my two cents about what we're going to find. So what are the long-term effects of cannabis use? Well, there's a lot of contradictory empirical evidence out there. I'll just put, a, put that out there first. But a lot of the research found that chronic cannabis use is associated with the following list of bad things. Uh, one thing is that it leads to apathy in a lot of people, or what they call amotivational syndrome. But again, some of the research suggests that it doesn't lead to this. Um, a lot of marijuana users are teenagers, and who are the most apathetic people on the planet? Well, they're teenagers in the United States. So is it just that they're a teenager that they're apathetic, or is it the marijuana? This is hard to tell sometimes. But it, there seems to be some good evidence that if you smoke a lot of pot, it will lead to some apathy. And you, you know, when you consider the basal ganglia is involved in motivation, and when you mess with that part of the brain with a particular compound, you could, you could imagine that it might affect your motivation, which would lead to apathy, right? So another ill effect of long-term use is the loss of goal-directed behavior and impaired cognition. So the ability to think straight can sometimes be affected by long-term use. It can lead to depression in some people. Not a lot, I would say. It's a minority of people. But some people, when they use marijuana a lot, can become depressed. Probably not severely, but, but mildly depressed. It can also lead to addiction. A lot of people think that marijuana is not an addictive substance, but empirical evidence shows just the opposite, that it very much can be addicting. It's not like cocaine where it produces very, very difficult withdrawal symptoms that people try to avoid by using all the time. But it does have withdrawal symptoms, and it does produce a, a craving when people don't use. So it very much is addicting. It's perhaps one of the least addicting substances, but 
that doesn't mean it's not addicting. It's also probably addicting because it's easy to use all the time. If, if you wanted to be a functioning member of society and drink alcohol every morning, it, that's going to be hard. You're, it's going to be hard to go to work drunk every day and function. Whereas you, a lot of people will smoke marijuana in the morning and in midday and at night, and they hold down a job and, and it's not a problem. So since a lot of people can get by by using several times a day, a lot of people become addicted because any substance you put in your brain chronically, the brain becomes acclimated to it. And I'll get more into that later. But anyway, so a possible long-term negative effect of cannabis use is the elevated risk of psychosis. There was there has been some correlational research that has found that early cannabis use is associated with an increased risk of psychosis or delusional disorders like schizophrenia. But it's difficult to figure out if it's correlation or causation because is it that people that are developing psychosis, say you know, you're 13 years old and you're developing a psychotic disorder but no one recognizes it yet and you're having a difficult time and you don't feel quite right. And so you look to substances to self-medicate. And so you come across pot and it makes you feel better. And then later on you develop psychosis. Well, it could look like the marijuana caused the psychosis when in fact you were a burgeoning psychotic individual anyway, and you were just using marijuana to cope with it. So is it correlation or is it causation? Uh, the science isn't in yet, but it seems to be that people that have a disposition for psychosis, if they're on the fence in terms of developing psychosis, if they use marijuana, it raises that risk. Now, you know, if a 13-year-old uses marijuana, it's a very low likelihood that they're going to develop psychosis if they didn't have a disposition for it already. So just say that. Another long-term effect, another long-term ill effect of cannabis use is impaired lung functioning. It makes sense, right? You're, well, if you're smoking it only. So if you're smoking it, you're, you're taking in a lot of smoke into your lungs, just like cigarettes, and this is going to harm the lungs. There used to be a rumor or a myth going around that Smoking marijuana doesn't cause cancer, which is ridiculous. You know, why wouldn't it? You're breathing in all these horrible chemicals into your lungs. It's going to harm the lungs. Plus, when people smoke marijuana, they breathe in very deeply and they, they pull the smoke deep into their lungs and then they hold it there typically. So smoking marijuana can be very harmful. Now, there's myths that say that marijuana is actually very much more harmful to your lungs than cigarettes, but but that's just not true. It's it's you know pretty much the same. The but the problem is is that again people will pull it in much more and hold it in. So when they did research on this, they found that people that smoke marijuana chronically are about the same risk of getting cancer as those people who smoke cigarettes chronically. And the reason is is because when people smoke cigarettes chronically, they smoke several cigarettes throughout the day and uh, breathe in a lot of cigarette smoke, but they don't hold it in their lungs, right? And whereas marijuana users will smoke much less substance, but they will breathe the smoke much deep, much more deeply into their lungs and hold it. So both chronic marijuana users and cigarette users are about the same risk of lung impaired functioning. There also seems to be some evidence that long-term marijuana use will impair brain development. Uh, again, the science isn't very convincing at this point, but there's some evidence that when you have teenagers that are using marijuana a lot, it seems to affect the development of the brain. Teenage brains are still developing, and it makes sense that if you're going to introduce a 
compound into the brain chronically that it's going to affect things and might permanently alter the brain functioning for the rest of someone's life. So along these lines, we have the gateway hypothesis, which people will say, you know, smoking marijuana is a gateway drug, meaning that it's a gateway to harder drugs, quote unquote, like cocaine or heroin. Well, some people say marijuana isn't a gateway drug, and some people say it is. I would say for the vast majority of people, it's not a gateway drug. Uh, a lot of people smoke marijuana, and very few people will go on to abuse other drugs. But, but it does happen. So, so does marijuana affect that? Does, does marijuana cause certain people who are prone to addiction more likely to develop an addiction? Or is marijuana just the first rest stop along a long path of addiction that they were going to go down anyway. Well, some research has found that early cannabis use is associated with a progression to other illicit drug use in the future. So scientists are looking into brain functioning, and there seems to be some evidence that early exposure to THC within the brain may permanently alter dopamine D2 receptors in the mesocortical limbic system. So essentially, it seems to permanently alter a particular receptor, a particular dopamine receptor within the brain, which seems to set the stage for a lifetime of addiction. So if you have teenagers that are using cannabis, they, they might be affecting their brain in such a way that will set them up for later addiction or make it much more difficult to kick a habit in the future. All right. So what is the prevalence of dependence on cannabis within the United States? Well, Regular cannabis use has been found to lead to tolerance and withdrawal symptoms. So when we talk about being dependent on a substance, we're talking about tolerating the substance and having withdrawal symptoms when, when they stop using. And tolerance means that you need more of the substance to produce the same effect. So according to research, about one in every 10 persons who start using cannabis will eventually develop a dependence upon cannabis. So that's pretty high. So you have 10, 20-year-olds that start using marijuana in college. One of them will develop a dependence at some point. Does that mean they're going to become totally strung out and a junkie? No, there are plenty of people who become dependent on substances and either maintain their life in a fairly functional way or kick the habit later on. But it means that they will meet the criteria for dependence at some point later on. In the U.S., the lifetime rates of cannabis dependence is between 1% and 4%. So when they look at the entire population of the United States at a particular time, they find that between 1% and 4% of the population in the United States is currently addicted to cannabis. So when someone is dependent on a substance, again, we're talking about them having tolerance for the substance and having withdrawal symptoms when they stop using the substance. And the science seems to suggest at this point, it's very early, but it seems to suggest that tolerance is the result of downregulation in brain CB1 receptors. So remember, I was talking about those CB1 receptors as very important in, in various parts of the brain and within the, the body. Well, when you use substances that activate that receptor over and over again in an unnatural way, shall we say, the, the body thinks, oh, I, I'm getting a lot of activation here. I don't need as many receptors. Receptors. So let's let's downregulate these receptors because we seem to have an overabundance of these CB1 receptors. So let's get rid of some of them. So as that happens, you become more tolerant to the substance because you have less receptors to respond to that substance. 
I hope that makes sense. So again, when you activate the CB1 presynaptic receptor over and over and over again with a lot of cannabinoids that are ingested or inhaled, the body responds by downregulating that receptor and that leads to tolerance because a month later after using a bunch of uh, cannabis, your body has now adjusted and it takes much more of the substance to produce the same response. So let's move on to withdrawal. So we have tolerance and withdrawal. So withdrawal symptoms begin typically within 48 hours since the last use. So people will quit using marijuana chronically and then about two days later, they'll start experiencing withdrawal symptoms because it, it takes a while for all of the THC and other cannabinoids to get out of the body. And the withdrawal symptoms seem to last between about seven to 10 days. So not forever but they last for a good amount of time. And those withdrawal symptoms are irritability, anxiety, cravings, obviously, aggression sometimes. I've, I've certainly seen anecdotal reports of people saying that when they were quitting marijuana, they got aggressive. Um, sometimes they can get depressed. People can get restless. They can have trouble sleeping. They can sweat a lot. They can feel nauseous. So these are a lot of negative effects from going cold turkey. And these withdrawal symptoms are the main reason, according to research, why people will relapse. So someone will say, I'm done with marijuana. I've been smoking it every day for 10 years now. I got to stop. This is ridiculous. And they'll stop. And then a couple of days later, they'll start getting irritable, depressed, aggressive. They'll have trouble sleeping. They'll have anxiety. I hear that a lot from people. I find that a lot of people that suffer from mild anxiety will use marijuana as a self-medication. And then ironically, when they try to stop, they have even more anxiety than they would normally, even without the marijuana. So they're freaking out at night and they can't sleep and they're freaking out during the day. And so they'll go back on marijuana because it reduces that anxiety. So according to the research, it's almost universal for people to relapse, meaning that it's very difficult to quit marijuana because of these withdrawal symptoms. All right. The last thing I'm going to get into today is the DSM-5. Recently, the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual released by the American Psychiatric Association, they released the most recent DSM, which is the DSM-5. We've been living with the DSM-4 for about, I don't know, 19 years or something. And so now we have the newest version. If you're a therapist, you know that, or you should. But um, there are three different cannabis-related disorders in the DSM-5, one being cannabis use disorder, which is basically cannabis dependence, and cannabis intoxication, and cannabis withdrawal. So first off, let's go into cannabis use disorder. Again, in the DSM-4, it was called cannabis dependence. Now it's called cannabis use disorder. I kind of like that label better. Because cannabis dependence carries with it a certain connotation of things like you absolutely need marijuana. And most people wouldn't say that. They wouldn't say that, oh my God, I'm totally fiending for marijuana the same way that they would fiend for a cigarette, for instance. It's, it's not usually like that. It can, it can be, certainly. So cannabis dependence kind of has that connotation of fiending for something. So cannabis use disorder is a much blander uh, label, right? So it, I think it applies better to the experience of individuals that are chronic cannabis users. The DSM-5 is the same as the DSM-4 in that it kept the criteria that the use must have clinically significant impairment or distress on someone's life. 
In the DSM-5, there's no longer a distinction between psychological and physiological dependence, which I think is also a good change. In the old DSM, they uh, had, again, this cannabis dependence disorder, and it had to be either psychological and or physiological. They've changed a lot of the specifiers for the cannabis use disorder diagnosis. The most important one, I think, is they've added the specifier of mild, moderate, or severe. So if you have cannabis use disorder mild, you have two to three symptoms. And if you have cannabis use disorder moderate, then you have four to five. And if you have severe, then it's six or more. And I like this system because before you either had cannabis dependence or you didn't. And now it's, it's on a spectrum, you either have mild, moderate, or severe. So they kept the original seven criteria and they added four more. So a lot of the criteria are the same, and those, those, those seven that they kept the same are, and this is my paraphrasing because they're much longer worded than this, but paraphrase the first seven are, one, more is taken than intended. You know, so people will say, I'm just going to smoke a one bowl tonight, and then they smoke three. So that is one of the criteria for cannabis use disorder. Two, unsuccessful in cutting back. So people will try to cut back, and they can't. And this is a a sign of uh, having a problem. Three, much time spent on it. So if people spend a lot of time buying it or thinking about it or using it, this is a sign of having a problem with the substance. Four, important activities are given up. So say someone says, oh, I have to go to Thanksgiving tonight with my family. Oh, but uh, I, I would rather stay home and get high. Well, this behavior would meet one of the criteria for cannabis use disorder. Five, continued use despite knowledge of the problem. So even though someone says, oh my God, I think I kind of have a problem, they continue using anyway. Six, tolerance. So again, if someone can tolerate the substance more than they used to, they meet one of the criteria for a cannabis use disorder. And seven, they have withdrawal symptoms. So if someone stops using and they experience withdrawal symptoms, that meets one of the criteria for cannabis use disorder. So the DSM-5 shares all seven of those with the DSM-4, but the DSM-5 adds four more, which are craving. So if you crave the substance, if you crave, crave cannabis, you meet one of the criteria for cannabis use disorder. If you fail to fulfill major role obligations. So this is an interesting criteria. So if you have trouble at work or you're having trouble fulfilling your role as a parent, for instance, this meets one of the new criteria for a cannabis use disorder. If cannabis use produces interpersonal problems, this meets one of the criteria for a cannabis use disorder. And this one seems a little funny because uh, certainly, you know, if you have a problem with a substance and it's causing you to lose friends, then we could say, hmm, maybe you have a problem. But say you're smoking a lot of marijuana and you have a very Puritan friend who just hates drugs on its face and will say things like, you shouldn't use drugs and I'm not going to be friends with you anymore. Well, does that meet the criteria because someone else has a political problem with you using it? I don't know. So the, the last new criteria in the DSM-5 that people will use when they are in physically hazardous situations. So say they're using while driving or they're using while they're operating large machinery, this sort of thing. So this is another 
indication of cannabis use disorder. So to qualify for the diagnosis of cannabis use disorder, someone only needs to meet two of the criteria instead of three. In the DSM-4, you needed to meet three of these criteria, and in the DSM-5, you only need to meet two. And since you have four more criteria, you're going to have a lot more people qualifying for cannabis use disorder than people who qualified for cannabis dependence, just on mathematics alone. So I think this is kind of a problem because the old system, I think, was working pretty well. But now you're going to have a lot of, shall we say, borderline problematic users being classified as having cannabis use disorder when before they wouldn't have qualified for that. My hope is, is that since they have the spectrum from mild to moderate to severe where they didn't have that before, you just either had disorder or not since you have mild, moderate, and severe, that assessors and treatment recommenders will look at that specifier and make appropriate recommendations based on that. So someone comes in and they have mild, well, you might just say, "Hmm, well, if I'm going to recommend treatment, I'm going to say, why don't you go to a 10-week class that meets once a week? Whereas if someone comes in and says they have, you know, and they they meet uh, four out of five or more symptoms, they have moderate or severe, then you're going to recommend a more intense outpatient program for them. But I don't know. We're just going to have to see. What can I say about marijuana in conclusion? I can say this. Well, as a therapist for the past 17 years, I have come across a lot of clinical situations with marijuana. One main one is when I have parents who bring in their teenager who uses marijuana a lot, and they're very concerned about it. And and I am too. I usually will talk with teenagers about cutting back on their use or, or abstaining because it's usually not just marijuana that's their that is their problem they're usually having trouble in school and they're having trouble with their parents and although i don't think marijuana exactly causes those problems it's probably not helping you know you can imagine that if you were having trouble in school and you were high at school it's going to be hard to motivate yourself to to do any productive work at school. It's not like marijuana negates the chance of that happening, but it'd be the same as if you were drunk at school. If you were drunk at school, how motivated are you going to be to do any work? Well, probably not very motivated. So it's the same sort of thing. And and people will smoke a lot at school. I've certainly seen that. Um, Or they come home and they smoke at night and when they should be doing their homework. And so they don't get any of their homework done. And I think I have also seen, and it's impossible to know for sure, but anecdotal evidence seems to suggest that for some kids, when they smoke a lot of marijuana, it it makes them have more volatility in their emotions, and they have a harder time coping with emotions, especially when they aren't using or when they don't have access to marijuana. So again, for those teenagers, I will usually talk with them about, about reducing or ceasing their use. I'll talk with them about going to N.A., and other treatment programs to help them stop. Or I'll just talk with them directly about sobriety. And I've seen a lot of teenagers quit using and and have good results. They think straighter. They have better behavior. They feel better. But I've also seen a lot of teenagers who won't stop using. And I've seen a lot of teenagers who say they stopped using when they didn't stop using. So I've seen a, a, a number of different things. Another situation that I've seen marijuana in my practice is with adults, particularly men, who are using chronically and are getting pressure from their spouse to stop using. So, uh, you know, say you have a husband with children 
And he comes into my office and he says, oh, I'm here because my wife says I need to stop using marijuana. And I didn't really want to go to a chemical dependency program because I didn't want them to yell at me because I heard that they yell at me, even though they don't. But I, I didn't want to be yelled at. So I came to a nice therapist that might be able to help me to quit. And so, you know, I'll talk with those people about how to quit. I might, again, recommend NA and a treatment program, but we can certainly talk about how to quit. And so I'll talk with them about coping strategies. I'll talk with them about why they're using marijuana all the time anyway. Do they have anxiety? Uh, a lot of people will have misinformation about what will happen when they stop using. A lot of people think like they'll go crazy or something horrible will happen. And, and again, usually there are withdrawal symptoms that are not pleasant, but they're not horrible and they only last for about a week. And once you get through it, then you get through it and your body adjusts. So um, I'll usually talk with people about, well, you know, check in with your doctor, make sure you're doing okay and maybe wean yourself off a little bit. And then, yeah, you're going to have to go through the withdrawal symptoms and they're not going to be pleasant. But once you get through it and you're sober for a certain amount of time, it'll be a lot easier. Now, will you always have some kind of a craving to use it? Probably, especially within the first you know, few months to a year. But if you have the proper support and you have the proper coping mechanisms in place, you should be able to, to succeed. And if you relapse, you just get back on the wagon and everything will be okay. And you shouldn't consider it to be a massive failure and you shouldn't let it be a shameful thing to relapse. Relapse is, is okay. It's, it's not the end of the world. A lot of people that will struggle with sobriety will have such shame around relapsing that when they relapse, their self-esteem goes through the floor and they feel so crappy about themselves and they can't gather the motivation and the fortitude to take on sobriety again. So shame is one of the biggest barriers to being sober. So we have to help people that are trying to quit to, to not feel ashamed. And one of the things that a lot of friends and family will do is they will use shame to try to get people to quit. And sometimes that actually is counterproductive and it actually causes people to stay within addiction anyway. Um, so I'll talk with uh, men in situations like that. I, I remember one young man in his 20s who wasn't in a relationship and wanted to quit using marijuana. He would come home after work and go into his basement and listen to music and smoke marijuana all night. And he didn't have very many friends and he you know, wasn't dating and he really wanted to do those things. And he felt that his marijuana use was impairing his, his ability to do that. Uh, it was sort of making him kind of dead to the world and was a crutch that he would lean on every night. And he felt like if he would quit, that would give him a straight mind at night and would motivate him to get out and do things rather than just holding up in his basement. Now, having said that, can someone hold up in their basement if they want to? Absolutely. In our society, we certainly frown on that sort of thing, but that's a cultural construction. It's not an immoral act to hold yourself up in your basement. We put a lot of value on getting married and being social. And when people don't do those things, we tend to look down on that and think, what's wrong with you? But I don't because it's not an immoral thing to be alone. If you don't want to be alone and you feel like you would rather do these other things like socialize and get married and this kind of stuff, then go for it. And if marijuana is in your way, then you probably should get rid of marijuana. But if you like to hold yourself up in your basement and listen to music and chill, then that's your prerogative. You, you have that ability to make that choice. So it's all about personal choice, I think, when it comes to that sort of thing. 
Oh, but getting back to the, the husband clients that I see who have cannabis problems, um, their spouses will often prompt them to come into therapy because uh, one of the problems with marijuana is that it kind of makes you a little dead to the world. It makes you a little internal. It, it makes it harder to, to socialize with people who aren't high, particularly. And so if you're a husband and a father, and every night after dinner you go into the garage and smoke weed, then you're going to be kind of an absent father. And the mother is left in the house doing all of the chores and taking care of the kids. And she feels kind of abandoned, even though the husband is at home. So a lot of these spouses will uh, have conflict with their husbands and that will prompt them to come into therapy. Let's see, what else can I say clinically about marijuana? One of the things that I learned from my research on cannabis is that it's a very risky thing to introduce a lot of THC into the brain in a developing brain. So according to the prevalence rates, more young people use marijuana than older people. And these young people, you know, up until the age of 25, the brain is still developing. And if you're soaking your brain in THC every day, it's likely to have some sort of an effect. The research isn't very strong at this point, telling us exactly what effect that is. It's hard to know because how much of the 25-year-old's personality is affected by marijuana or not. It's, it's impossible to, to know that. But it makes sense, based on what we know about the brain, that when you have a substance that is chronically in the brain and creating systemic ongoing changes in the brain, as the brain is developing, it makes sense that this would affect development. Now, uh, having said that, maybe it actually enhances development in some ways. You never know. We just have to do more science in that area. My guess is, is that it, it doesn't enhance the brain, but, but again, you just, you just never know. But again, it just seems like a risk not worth taking. Now, would, would occasional marijuana use cause there to be a major shift in the development of one's brain? Probably not. So it's really about ongoing chronic use that I would be concerned about. Another thing that I run into with my clients is the emerging identity of a child. If you hang out with teenagers, you will see them developing their identity. When, when kids are 9, 10, 11, they tend to have a generic identity. You know, they're, they're just a kid, if that makes any sense. As they get older, as, as kids get older and 14, 15, 16, you start seeing them deciding about who they are as a person. Am I a jock? Am I a nerd? Am I a nice person? Am I kind of a grouchy person? Am I the sort of person that likes to socialize a lot? Am I not? So when you have a teenager with an emerging identity and they are using marijuana, there are certain risks about that. So we all know that kids have lower self-esteem than older people. Certainly older people can have low self-esteem as well. But if you take a 13, 14-year-old who is struggling with their self-esteem and they're looking for a way to feel better about themselves and they fall into using marijuana a lot and the kids in the school start seeing that person as a stoner and start making jokes about it or start giving respect to that person in some way, start seeing that kid as cool. If you have no identity other than the stoner identity, you might find that person gravitating more towards marijuana and using more and more often because that identity gives them self-confidence. It gives them a niche in their social environment to fit into. And without it, they might feel a little lost regarding their identity. 
if you have the identity of a stoner, you might get to be friends with all the other stoners in the school. You might be seen as a rebel. People might come to you if they need marijuana, and, and that could certainly feel good. People need you and, and depend on you to, to supply them with the marijuana. So it can be a very seductive identity for some people who don't have an, an identity otherwise. And so I work with families sometimes on trying to help these children, these teenagers, to have another choice regarding their identity. Because if you just take away the marijuana and don't give them a replacement lifestyle, it'll be hard for them not to gravitate back towards marijuana once they've quit. Another thing that I've seen is older teenagers and younger adults getting into selling marijuana. Again, it's a very seductive lifestyle to get into because you can make quick money. People need you. You have all the marijuana you want, basically, so you can smoke your supply, so to speak. But pretty much universally, what I find is that once the teenager, young adult gets to be about 23, 24, they start telling me that they wish they never got into selling because it's a hard thing to get out of. And they wasted all their time selling when they could have been going to school and this kind of thing. And they feel like it's a hard gig to get out of because they depend on it to to make money, but it's a hard gig to make a lot of money out of. It's it's hard. It's it's good money for an eighteen year old because at eighteen you're usually only qualified for minimum wage jobs, so you're making more than that. But it, there's a ceiling to how much money you can make selling weed, and and a lot of people lament being stuck in that mode. And also the older someone gets, the more concerned they get about, about getting in trouble with the law and the more concerned they are about getting jacked and getting jumped and getting robbed. And so um, you'll also see them trying to get out of it for those reasons. The other thing that I'll say rather tentatively is that I read some research and I've seen clinical examples of the possibility that marijuana actually helps people. I know that might be a controversial statement, but I've heard families say that although they don't like their teenager using marijuana, when the child uses marijuana, they seem to do better in school. Now, this is extremely counterintuitive, right? And for most kids, this probably isn't the case. But it seems to be that with some people who have trouble with attention or they might have trouble with their emotions or they might have trouble with their anxiety, when they are using marijuana, say, every day after school or even during school, they appear to do better in school. They pay more attention. They're more relaxed. They socialize better. They feel better about themselves. Now, again, having said that, I'm not saying that if your kid is struggling in school, you should tell him to smoke marijuana. But it, it seems possible that that could happen. But having said that, I have also heard people say that marijuana is enhancing their life when, to me, it doesn't seem like it is. You know, if you're an addict and you are defensive about your use, one of the easiest ways to defend your use is, is to say that it's actually making your life better when you're in denial of the ways in which it is not making your life better. And I guess the last thing I'll say clinically about pot is that when I'm working with families, when I'm working with parents who have teenagers who are using marijuana, I almost always see them over time shift toward a less severe opposition to their kid using marijuana. I'll see the family when the kid's 13 and the parents are 
they're a million percent against their child using marijuana and they clamp down really hard and they manage to reduce it a little bit, but usually the kid ends up figuring out ways to use it without getting caught. And then by the time the kid is 16, 17, the parents will still not be happy about their kid using marijuana, but they're a lot less adamant about it. And then by the time the kid is 20, the parents are saying, well, he smokes marijuana. I really don't like it that he does that, but he seems to be doing okay. He's working or he's going to college or he seems to be doing okay in life. And I and I guess I need to concede that marijuana didn't ruin his life the way that I thought it would when he was 13. Now, again, having said that, I'm not saying that it's clinically okay for all kids to be using marijuana chronically. Um, as I said earlier, it's a risk that I, I wouldn't recommend that teenagers take with their brains. But he, But really, the bottom line is this. If there was a way for parents to effectively get their kid to be sober, then I would say, let's do it. But I've worked with so many parents on this issue and worked with so many different chemical dependency counselors and principals and teachers and mentors and coaches to get kids to stop using that I know that sometimes everything you do amounts to nothing other than ruining your relationship with that kid. Now, certainly I've seen parents put good enough pressure on a child to quit and they quit. But other times what I see is as the parents ramp up their discipline and their punishment of the child, the child reacts with anger sometimes or with annoyance or with hurt feelings. And this creates a lot of tension in the family. And over you know the span of months and years, the relationship between the teenager and the parents crumbles to the point where there's very little goodwill between them maybe even zero goodwill. You know, you can imagine the parent going back and forth with the kid, like, I need you to quit, and the kid lies, and then they catch them, and then they're upset, and they they ground the kid, and the kid is angry, and then the kid finds some way to use, and then the parents are more angry, and they ground the kid even more, and then they stop giving the kid any kind of freedom or any kind of gifts on his birthday, and then you have a kid that's more and more angry and more and more resentful, and he's hostile with the parents, and now the parents are coming back with their own hostility, and it just becomes a big mess. Well, what I have to say about that and what I tell parents is, what I, what I tell parents is the bottom line is you need a good relationship with your kid, and don't let this ruin that. Don't sacrifice the love and the bond and the attachment that you have with your child for the sake of trying to help them with their problem with marijuana. It's not worth it. But I've seen it happen so many times because parents dig in their heels or they consider it their job to get their kid off of marijuana. And of course, it is their responsibility, but it's also also their responsibility to uphold an attachment, which kids need. They very, 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 I can't even emphasize, you know, let's just imagine I said very a thousand times. They very much need an attachment with their parents. They thrive within that attachment. And without that, they struggle, not only with relationships and, and with their performance in school, but also just their self-esteem, their own sense of self, their own feelings about themselves. So if there's a way to keep the good times going, to keep the attachment, to have love and, and have warmth with your child while pressuring them to stop using marijuana, then go for it. But otherwise, sometimes it's better to let go of the opposition to marijuana to be able to hold on to the attachment. And so what I see parents do eventually 
at times is they will say, look, we don't like you, you using marijuana. You know that we've said it a million times over the past three years, but we realize that you're going to use it and we are, we give up to some extent. So what we're going to say is we don't want to see it. We don't want it in the house. If you're going to use it, be away from the house. Uh, but again, we don't want you to use it, but I don't want to see it in this house. And then if the parents find a bong in the room, they'll confiscate it and throw it away. Or if they find weed in the room, they'll throw it away, that kind of thing. Because the alternative is if they give up on the discipline regarding marijuana and the kids start smoking in the house, then that can feel very icky to parents uh, naturally. So they just will lay down certain rules about uh, decorum, I guess. And again, I'll say one more time. When teenagers and young adults use marijuana chronically, they're taking a risk with altering the developmental path of their brain. And it's a risk that I don't recommend people take. Also, I, I guess, when, clinically speaking, it seems as though when people use marijuana chronically, what will happen is they don't always have the same amount of THC in their brain. Different marijuana has different, you know, has different amounts of THC in it, as I mentioned earlier. They might smoke more one day as opposed to the next. And this all amounts to a varying level of a substance in their brain, which their brain is always trying to adjust for and will create problems in their thinking and behavior. And that volatility in their thinking and in their feelings and in their behavior might lead to social problems or academic problems, which will make things worse for them. I've certainly seen that before as well. Okay, and one more thing to say. Um, when teenagers are using marijuana, oftentimes it is a self-medication for some of the thing, either self-esteem, anxiety, depression, this sort of stuff. So if we can give kids the tools and the support around those areas, they will not need marijuana for it. I've certainly seen that. I, I remember a client, a teenager, who was suffering from anxiety and depression, and he would have these episodes where he would become extremely distressed and marijuana was the only thing that made him feel better. It didn't take it away, but it just took the edge off. And so when people, including me, would try to get him to stop using marijuana, he would always go back to it because he would have these emotional episodes. And so we switched to trying to help him with his emotional episodes as a way of trying to help him reduce his marijuana use. And it, it worked. Um, he didn't ever completely stop using marijuana, but he definitely reduced it. And he became a lot more self-aware and he worked really hard on understanding his emotions. And I think he did some really good work. All right. Well, that turned into a much longer episode than I thought it was going to be. I'm sure that I have some errors in there. If you want to let me know, as some of you love to let me know about errors, uh, you can certainly do so by sending an email to contact at psychologyinseattle.com. That's contact at psychologyinseattle.com. You can also, if you want, go to our website at psychologyinseattle.com and look around and go to the support us page. We would love it if you supported the podcast because, again, as I said earlier, our self-esteem is based on your support and you wouldn't want us to cry ourselves asleep every night, would you? You would rather have us sleep uh, well and and have cryless sleeping. So uh, please go there and you can donate and you can leave nice comments or you can send us a nice email, that kind of stuff. It's always nice to get those. All right. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me and please take care of yourself. Yeah.